So chapter 25 is a major transition in the book of Genesis. We have been looking at the life of Abraham since Genesis chapter 12, back when his name was Abram, right? Now the story is going to move away from Abraham, and it's going to move to his descendants. And we would expect that chapter 25 would be all about Isaac, right? Because Isaac was the son of promise, and we saw he was born, and we saw him get a bride last week. But interestingly, this, the Bible is going to jump over Isaac and go straight to Jacob and Esau. And then it will go back to Isaac for chapter 26. Then it will go back to Jacob and Esau in 27. There's not a lot in there about Isaac. I don't know why. Maybe he didn't have as exciting a life as his father and his children did. And a lot of the things we're going to see tonight, we've got a couple genealogies here, which is what deters many of us from reading our Bibles. Everybody says, oh, I did that Bible through the year thing. And well, how far did you get? Well, Leviticus, you know, or Genesis chapter 10 when it started running through all the names. But these details might seem boring, but I'm going to try to draw out for you that the names we're going to read tonight set the stage for the rest of Scripture. And as we go through this, the Lord is introducing all the different nations and characters that are going to come up later on. Like we've seen several times, as I've said, you know, this is the first time we see the Philistines, for example, in the Bible, right? Or we say this nation, this man named Ashur, it doesn't mean much Yet, but later on, he's going to be the father of the Assyrians. Well, we're going to have several names like this in this chapter. And I also want to remind you what is so important as we go through genealogies in the Bible and things like that. And when it gives you like directions on how to get to somewhere in the land, and you're like, I don't really need this. Just tell me what happened. This reminds us that these were real people that went through real circumstances in real places. You know, you read the the Hindu texts, or you read the Book of Mormon, and they've got all kinds of wild and wacky stories of things that happened in places that we can't even find. Y'all know where Jerusalem is. You know where Bethlehem is. You could buy a ticket and fly there. <laughs> you could drive. You know people. We can look at a map and say it's right there. The Bible is telling us the truth. So it's important that we go through this that is not just some hero of old, but we know who their fathers were, who their children were, and these insignificant details add to the credibility of Scripture. And for ourselves, there is going to be a profound application point that we'll get to at the end of this chapter, which reminds us of the incredible value of what we have in Jesus Christ, and it's going to be a warning against selling out. It's our title tonight, of treating it like a common thing, which is what Esau did. But before we get there, we're going to start with these first 11 verses, and we're going to finish up the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis. Verse 1, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Yokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Yokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanok, Abida, and Eldaah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham, verse 5, gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. 
Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Be'er Lahai Roy. This is the end of Abraham's story. And verse 1 drops something on us that we might not be ready for. <laughs> if you were in Sunday school, maybe you never learned that Abraham had another wife. We know all about Abraham and Sarah, but here we have this woman named Keturah. <clears throat> and the name Keturah comes from the word Qatar in Hebrew, and it means perfumed or fragrant. It comes from the word that means to offer incense. So that's maybe why they chose to give their daughter that name. In that culture, it's not a bad thing to be known for smelling okay, right? Now, this is very odd for us to look at and something for you to ponder in your own time. Genesis chapter 25, verse 1, calls her the wife of Abraham. But we're going to see down in verse 6, we already read, that he refers to her children as the concubines, the children of his concubines. We knew that Hagar was his concubine and Ishmael was the son of his concubine. And then in 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 32, again, it will call Keturah the concubine of Abraham. Now, here's the question that must be asked. Was Keturah Abraham's wife or concubine before or after Sarah died? The word in verse 1 that says Abraham took another wife could just as easily be translated Abraham had taken another wife, which was, of course, not uncommon at this time of history and not even at this point in salvation history. So this is interesting to ponder. I'm inclined to think, just giving Abraham the benefit of the doubt, that Keturah came later because the last time Abraham had a concubine and had a son by that concubine, it was a big deal. And it would seem that when the Lord regenerated Abraham's body and enabled him to have children with Sarah, that God blessed him further and allowed him to have children with Keturah. But it is important to know that that is still possible, that Abraham, like many wealthy men of the day, also had a concubine named Keturah, who bore him six sons. And we don't know much about many of these sons. We read about Yokshan, who fathered Sheba. We later on will hear about the queen of Sheba, right? Midian is the most important one. You probably recognize that name there in verse 2. That Abraham had a son named Midian. Moses, when he flees the land of Egypt after he kills the Egyptian, will flee to Midian, where he will meet Jethro, where he will meet his wife, Zipporah, and his brother-in-law, who was a Midianite, would be one of the ones to lead them through the wilderness and show them how to get around. So the Midianites play a big part in Israel's history, and they would later become a vicious enemy of the nation of Israel. But they were all related, like the Ishmaelites are related to the Israelites. We also read about Shua. He is less important, but you remember in the book of Job, Bildad the Shuhite was a descendant of Shua. He would have been a Shuhite. But we read about all these children, and it says that he sent them all away. When Abraham sent Ishmael away, it was a big, important story because they had been raising Ishmael to be his heir, which they should not have done. Because Isaac was the son of the promise, with a capital P. He was the son that God had promised him to carry on the hope of salvation. 
So he sends them away to the east. That also could be to Kedem. We're not sure where Kedem is, but it also can mean east. So that direction. And in verse 7, Abraham dies at 175. Not a short life, was it? This is 100 years after he left Haran in chapter 12, verse 4. When he came to Haran, he was 75. He dies at 175. So we have followed him for 100 years. For all his shortcomings, and there were a lot, for all his failures, and there were a few, Abraham had faith. And God was able to use that faith to shape him into the man that he needed him to be. And this is a point I've made several times along the way, so I won't make it again for too long, but God can use a messed up person with faith. This is why a lot of times you see denominations and preachers and folks that have some issues with their doctrine and their practices, but the Lord is using them. And you go, Lord, you can't use them. Look at what they're teaching. Look at what they're doing. God can work with faith. That's all I can say. God is willing to work with people who have faith. So somebody who is, has all the right doctrine and all the right practices and is doing everything right, but lacks the faith to step out, is not going to see the hand of God as much as someone like Abraham, who had a lot of issues, but certainly believed God when he told him what was what. And the good news is that all of us have been blessed through Father Abraham, even us, those of us who are Gentiles. Galatians 3, 7 through 9, here's how we'll wrap up his life. Paul writes, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. If you have faith in Christ, you are a son or a daughter of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations, all the goyim, that could be translated, all the Gentiles be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So you are a son or a daughter of Father Abraham, just like that song you used to sing when you were a little kid, remember? And it says he was gathered to his people. This is another subject we'll get into at some time. But by saying he was gathered to his people, there is here the first, you might say, implication of an afterlife in the Bible. That being gathered to your fathers prior to your burial, whenever they use that phrase, he was gathered to his fathers, that always happens prior to burial. So it's referring to what happens to the soul. Remember in Luke chapter 16, 22, when Lazarus, the poor man, dies, and he's taken where? To Abraham's bosom. He's taken to the house and the arms and the embrace, you might say, of his father Abraham. So this is an idea that is carried throughout the rest of Scripture. A lot of folks will tell you the Old Testament didn't believe in an afterlife. Simply not true. But Isaac and Ishmael, the two brothers, buried him in the cave of Machpelah. We read about that last time. With his wife, Sarah. So we've seen in the book of Genesis, in chapter 3, verse 15, the Lord made that first promise that the son of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That's the hope that we're waiting on. And the Lord focused that hope in one man, Abraham. The Lord is going to take that promise and give it to Abraham and said, that, that son of woman that we're waiting for is going to be your child. Well, that promise, with a capital P, has been passed on to his son, Isaac. Abraham is gone, but the promise has not died because the Lord was faithful. So we read verses 12 through 18. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaiot, the firstborn of Ishmael. 
and Kedar, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Chadad, Tema, Yetur, Nafish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. Sound familiar? These are the years of the life of Ishmael. 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. There it is again. Verse 18, they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. Well, verse 12 gives us our first Toledoth marker since chapter 11, verse 27. It seemed like in the first chapters we had these every other week. It's been a long time, but you remember that word Toledoth in Hebrew is a plural word that means generations. So several times in the book of Genesis you will see these are the generations of and it marks a big transition in the book of Genesis. Anytime we're making a big pivot, you're going to see this term, these are the generations. So chapter 2, verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Chapter 5, verse 1, the generations of Adam. Chapter 6, verse 9, the generations of Noah. Chapter 10, verse 1, these are the generations of Noah's sons. Chapter 11, verse 10 focuses it. These are the generations of Shem. Then in chapter 11, verse 27, these are the generations of Terah. And we've been focusing on the family of Terah, Lot and Abraham, and now Rebekah and Laban. And then in chapter 25, verse 12, when Abraham is gone, we read the generations of Ishmael. And Ishmael has 12 sons, just like Jacob. You remember twice in chapter 17 and in chapter 21, God had promised, I will make a great nation out of Ishmael. He told it to Abraham, because Abraham, remember, he said, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. So what about the son I've already got, Lord? And the Lord said, don't worry, I'm going to take care of him. And then when Hagar was sent away and they were in the wilderness and Ishmael was about to die of thirst, remember that story? He said, you get up and take your son by the hand. I'm going to make a great nation out of him. And that's exactly what God has done. We're going to see the Ishmaelites sprinkled throughout the Bible. The name of his son, Kedar, which was his second son, is often used, especially in the prophets, as a stand-in for the Ishmaelites or the Arabians. Like it will refer to Samaria to refer to the northern kingdom, or Babylon to refer to the Babylonian Empire. It'll refer to Kedar, often as a stand-in for the Arabian nations. And we also, in Luke chapter 3, verse 1, that one of the provinces there was a place called Iturea. Iturea was a place that had been founded by Yetur, who was also a son of Ishmael. So you see these names, while we can blow past them, they're important because they come back later. And reading the name Kedar, you can pass right over that, but if you realize that that is a descendant of Ishmael, it might lend a little color to that passage. So it's important to know this. And it says in verse 18, they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. And as we go through the Bible, they're all over. We see Ishmaelites settled here and settled there and moving over this way. We also know from Assyrian and Babylonian history, the Ishmaelites were all over this part of the world. They were nomadic. They were Bedouin, as you might say. They, they didn't stay in one place. And they spread over all over what we call today the Arabian Peninsula. It's hard sometimes to know exactly what spot we're talking about in the Bible because this was written so long ago and place names change. But we know that Shur 
was the desert region between Egypt and Israel. This is where Hagar had encountered the Lord before. This is Shur. And we know that Havilah was opposite Assyria, which is up in Mesopotamia between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. So we think Havilah was up here. We know Shur was down here. And this whole region in between is the Arabian Peninsula. That is Saudi Arabia today. Yemen and Oman are at the bottom. And it says that that whole area was what God gave to the Ishmaelites. And we can see they're still there. The Lord did not renege on his promise to Abraham to bless his son. And Ishmael lived to be 137 years old, was gathered to his people. And <laughs> this verse here, the very last line of verse 18, where it says, He settled over against all his kinsmen, sounds innocuous. But there's actually a little hint at the character of Ishmael and the Ishmaelites here. Because the word he uses for settled is not what's usually used for settled. It's the word nafal. Now the word in nafal in Hebrew means to fall. It's where you get the word nephilim from, the fallen ones. Okay, So depending on how you translate this, you could translate it to say that the Ishmaelites fell against their kinsmen. And some people have read that to believe that the Ishmaelites were destroyed by their kinsmen, which we know is not true, but some folks don't take into account what the rest of the Bible says. Or they fell, as in they landed, you know, they settled somewhere against their kinsmen. But I think what is a very interesting translation point, how many times in the Bible does it say that this army fell upon that other army? The Egyptians fell upon them. Awake, Samson, the Philistines are falling upon you. So you could translate that that he attacked or even invaded his kinsmen. Which makes a lot of sense because in Genesis 16:12, the Lord said about Ishmael, he shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. He doesn't dwell next to anybody. He dwells against people. So depending on how you translate that word, it could be saying, they settled in the Arabian Peninsula, and they were always fighting somebody. And you look through history, and that has remained true, hasn't it? But God continues to bless the Ishmaelites. Despite the deception of Islam that has come upon them, the Lord is going to bless them because they are Abraham's children. And you can see, as we go through this list, we've seen the Midianites, we've seen the Ishmaelites, we've, of course, got Jacob and Esau, the Lord is blessing Abraham. He is becoming the father of many what? Nations. Just like God promised. And this is what happens to Ishmael, but we're going to leave him at this part of the story. The last thing we see him doing before his death is burying Abraham with Isaac. So let's get on to verse 19 now. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And we'll pause there. Verse 19 
is another Toledoth marker. Been months since we've seen one, now we got two in one night. These are the generations of Isaac. And this is going to last until chapter 36 when we read about the generations of Esau. So you can see the story is transitioning again to focus on Isaac. We talked about this last time, but now you can read the verse for yourself that when Isaac was married, he was 40 years old. When, you remember, the servant went to Padan Aram and brought Rebekah with him and she watered the camels and that whole story, you remember it. And in verse 26 of this chapter, we haven't read it, but we're going to see that when the twins were born, Isaac was 60 years old. This tells us that when it says she was barren in verse 21, you might want to write in the margin, for 20 years. They tried to have a child for 20 years. You remember, Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years to have a child. And they almost had to wait just as long. So while the Bible gives us long chapters detailing the, the wait for the child of promise, Isaac and Rebekah had to wait almost as long. And the Lord is going to hear him when he prays. He's not going to get many, many details there, but they're going to have a child. Childless women seem to be God's specialty in the Bible. You see that a lot. Not, of, not only, of course, with Sarah and then with Rebecca. We're going to see it later on with Rachel, that God is going to open her womb. Hannah, the mother of Samuel. Manoah's wife, who was the father of Samson. Elizabeth, later on in the New Testament, the mother of John the Baptist. God has a special place in his heart for women who can't have children. But she gets what she wanted, and it says that the children struggled within her. This is the Hebrew word ashak. And the word ashak could be translate abuse, crush, or oppress. So I've never been pregnant. But ladies, maybe you have felt when you were having a child that you were being abused, crushed, or oppressed by that child. <laughs> These boys were fighting in the womb. And so she goes to the Lord. I mean, think of it. At this time, there's no ultrasounds. You don't know what's going on. She just knows that she is in pain, and it's difficult, and it's oppressive. So she goes to the Lord to find out what's going on. And God tells her, you have two nations in your womb. Those nations would come to bear the names Edom and Israel. And he prophesies a very significant line in Scripture is in verse 23, the older shall serve the younger. Why? Think about that. Why did God pick Jacob and not Esau? Now you might say, well, because Jacob was the righteous one. Ha! Wait until we get later on in this book. You wondered why God would pick Abraham. Just wait until we get the stories about Jacob. Why did God pick the younger to serve the older? Well, Paul tells us. You can turn to Romans chapter 9 if you like. I'm going to read it. But Romans chapter 9, Paul refers to this story, and he tells us why God chose Jacob and not Esau. Paul says, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, which is a quote from Malachi. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is that unfair for God to pick this one and not that one? He says, by no means. 
For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it, what's it? Salvation. Depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. I'm going to read that line again from in that passage. Why did God pick the younger and not the older? In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Why did God pick the younger? To say, it does not matter what the laws or the rules are. I'm God and I choose. He's not giving his promise away arbitrarily to whoever happens to be the oldest. In a way, God is doing this because he can. He's picking the younger over the older because it's unexpected. And he's reminding everybody whose promise this is. That it is his will that matters, not our efforts. It could have very easily become, well, I'm the oldest. I have the promise. The Messiah is going to come through me. God goes, that's not how I do things. We're going to see later on, even the son of Jacob. Everybody thinks, who's going to be the son of promise when you read through the book of Genesis? You think it's Joseph. It's not Joseph. It's Judah. Judah wasn't even the firstborn of his other wife. It was the fourthborn. The Lord's purpose of election is what matters. This is why men like Ephraim, the youngest son of Jacob, will be chosen to carry the, carry the blessing of that family. Moses was not the oldest. David, remember, had seven older brothers. And God chose him to be king. Solomon was not the next in line to the throne. Adonijah was. And Bathsheba had to come and remind David, don't you forget now, the Lord said it was going to be Solomon, not him. And there was a big scandal at that point in the book of 2 Samuel. We'll read it when we get there. Because the Lord doesn't pick people based on human reasoning. Isn't that great? Aren't you glad about that? You don't have to be the oldest to get God's blessing. And in this passage, we have the official declaration, which is going to last the rest of Scripture, that Jacob would be the one to carry the promise, not Esau. And God picked it just to remind everybody, I'm the one in charge, not you. So we read verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old, there it is, when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. The Lord told Rebekah, there are two nations in your womb. She might not have known exactly what that meant. Okay, what does that mean? I have nations in my womb, I have a baby in my womb. Well, she had two babies twins. The first one comes out red and hairy. And so they named him Esau, which means hairy. What a hairy baby. We'll call him that. And it says that he was red all over. That word is Adomi, which means red. This is why we call the descendants of Esau the Edomites, because it comes from the name red. And some people have speculated that what this means is that Esau had red hair which, of course, in this culture would have been a bit of a novelty, right, to have a red-headed kid. Or it could mean that he had red skin, that he was ruddy is a term we don't really use anymore, but that's, that's a term and what it means. And he had a lot of hair. And I think it's that one because later on, Jacob is going to put goat skins on his arms and trick his dad. Oh, that's Esau. That's what Esau's arm feels like. So if you ever pet your dog, 
That's what Esau's arms felt like. That's Esau. Harry. And then they pull out baby number one, and the other baby is grabbing his ankle, grabbing his heel. So they name this one Jacob, which means heel catcher. Again, really creative with these names, huh? You would have pronounced this. Esau is actually appropriately pronounced. That's how it would be in Hebrew. But it's Yaakov. There's a little catch in your way. Yaakov there. Heel catcher. The idea behind that name is that Jacob wanted to be born first and was grabbing him and saying, no, I go first. So they call him heel catcher, which has the sense of a supplanter or a cheat, the kind of person that is running the race and reaches out and grabs the heel of the guy in front of him so that he can get, cross the finish line first. Heel catcher. Gail Irwin put it best. Dirty, sneaky thief. So we have Harry and we have heel catcher. Jacob and Esau. And it tells us something about the character of these boys. And actually paints a pretty vivid picture here. Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. So Esau was a big redneck. And I'm going to paint these pictures, and they're kind of funny, but I think they really help bring this story to life for you. Esau was an outdoor kid. He didn't want to sit in the house. And when he grew up, all he wanted to do, he wanted to hunt. He wanted to fish. He wore a camouflage hat with a fish hook on the end of it. He cut the sleeves off his T-shirts and let his big hairy arms flap in the breeze. He drove a truck that was jacked up way too high, and he took the muffler up so it was real loud. He had Monster Energy Drink stickers on the back of his truck. And everybody called him Big Red. Edom. His name was Esau, but they called him Red. That's Esau. Get that picture in your mind. On the other hand, we have Jacob. Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. You always knew when Esau was coming home because the music was cranked up so loud, the whole neighborhood woke up and he rolls in in his big truck. Right? And you got the big floodlights coming off the top in the middle of the night. Jacob was a quiet man. He was a quiet man. And this is interesting. That word quiet in Hebrew is tam. It can mean, actually can mean complete or wholesome. But it also can mean placid or quiet. And I think that's probably best because we're not just using the word. We're contrasting it to this big, brash, macho outdoorsman. Jacob was indoorsy. You got to picture Jacob as spending time inside the tents. Big brother's out there bow hunting. Jacob is inside learning how to cook with mom. Jacob wore skinny jeans. <laughs> Jacob had those thick-rimmed glasses, even though he didn't need them. He had one of those haircuts that swooped down real far over his face. He took really good care of his fingernails. He listened to emotional, sad music that made him cry. All the ladies said, oh, Jacob is such a sweet boy. That was Jacob. He was a cook. We're going to see later on he was a whiner. And you can see, it's very clear, which parent liked which one. It just makes sense. Dad likes the hunter. That's my boy. Out he goes. That's a big, strong, hairy young man. That's, that's the kind of man that, that comes from me. That's my son. Chip off the old block. Now, Jacob, well, his mama liked him. Rebecca loved you. Don't go out. Just stay with me, Jacob. Just stay in the house and we'll clean together. It's always so much fun when we bake cookies together, Jacob. You can see already 
the seeds of favoritism in this family. Nobody, <laughs> Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, or Esau is going to come out of the story looking good. And you can already see the seeds of trouble here. Now, it's very easy, and listen, this is what I'm about to do in about five seconds, could be a whole men's retreat message here. It is very easy to attach blame to either one of these guys based on their disposition. I read a whole commentary. That's been great so far. But his whole message was God chose Jacob because Jacob wasn't some big, tough, macho guy. He was calm and he was quiet. And that's the kind of man that God wants you to be. Really? That sounds like the kind of thing an academic would write, doesn't it? Turns out that God loves bookish people, said the guy writing the book. This is not good for us to do. And listen, culture has swung back and forth. Used to be, if you had a son that liked poetry, you kicked him out and you gave him a horse and you say, go learn how to make something of yourself, right? Nowadays, it's flipped a little bit. You got a real tough kid, oh, we got to put him in ballet lessons and get rid of that toxic masculinity, right? Let me tell you something. Both of those personalities have temptations that they can fall prey to. A big, tough, macho guy can fall prey to pride. He's going to be swaggering around. We're going to see later on that Esau was a bit of a womanizer. He was flippant. He didn't care about things. He didn't take things seriously. And that's a temptation that some guys fall into. On the other hand, the quiet guy, the indoorsy guy, well, he's much more self-controlled, maybe. Or maybe he doesn't have the guts to put outside what's going on inside. We're going to see that Jacob would become manipulative Jacob would become resentful. Jacob would be a schemer and a liar. He can't even confront his father-in-law to get away with his family. He's got to sneak away in the dead of night. He's going to let his mom push him around. He's going to let his wife push him around. And he's going to get to the end of his life. And he's going to stand before Pharaoh complaining. Pharaoh says, oh, it's so great to meet the father of Joseph. And he's going to say, yeah, well, my life has been short and full of trouble and not as good as my dad's life. That's Jacob, the heel catcher. So either one of them has a temptation. And listen, God can use a macho man. David was a macho guy. Read that again. Oh, he was so sensitive. He wrote poetry. Yeah, okay. Break their teeth, Lord God. Smash their skulls against the bricks of the street, Lord. That was David. He cut off people's hands when they did what he didn't want them to do. He went into battle and slew, as the song said, tens of thousands. God used that guy. Lord said, that's a man after my own heart. Well, what about bookish, quiet people? Can God use them? Yeah. Look at Ezra. Ezra was a scribe. Ezra had a PhD. Ezra was the guy that went out to the frontier to settle the country, and he had books. Every Western has that one guy, right? You've got all the gunslingers, and you've got the doctor that wears the glasses, and oh, is bumbling around, doesn't know what to do. That was Ezra. But the Lord used him to bring in a revival that finally got rid of idolatry from the land of Israel forever, to this day. Both need the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. So don't attach spirituality to your disposition. I read a book one time. I'm dead serious. I was loving it up until I got to this chapter. It was saying, women have a natural disposition toward the gospel. Women are better suited to receive the gospel of the kingdom than men are. Men have more to get over. I'm like, are you kidding me? Where did you get that from? Because this guy was attaching spirituality to a disposition. 
Sometimes we, we look at a big, brash sin, and we say, that's worse than this one over here. I'll tell you, the most prideful, angry people I've ever met have been quiet people. I'm dead serious about that. Because they get prideful that they're not like that guy. How many movies have been made with the big, dopey football player finally getting his comeuppance? Nerds go to Hollywood and write stories about what they wish had happened. And then he, then, and then he fell down the stairs, and then his girlfriend dumped him. And then, then you know, you're, just, you're writing your pain in front of everybody for them all to see. Nor do you say, well, a big, tough guy, that's the one that God loves. That's the one that God can use. You've got to be brave. You've got to be bold. You've got to be strong and do lots of push-ups. And Hold on a second. I've heard people say, Jesus had to be ripped to carry that cross up that mountain. I heard that was actually a sermon that I heard one time. <laughs> you think you're going to be weak and serve God? It's, take it easy, guy, right? Paul would tell Timothy, yeah, bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is what prophesies. How about none of this is really important when it comes to your heart? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 17, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. How many people? No one. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If Jacob is in Christ, he is Israel. If Big Red is in Christ, he's a new creation. Well, God chose Jacob because we can see in this story that he was more sensitive to spiritual things. No, he wasn't. Just you wait. God chose Jacob to assert his sovereignty, not because he was quiet. And both of these boys are going to make plenty of trouble, as we will see presently. So let's get on to verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. We looked at this, which means red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is where our application is going to come in primarily tonight. This is a horrible story. Esau comes in from the field, exhausted, and trades his birthright for a bowl of stew. Now, I love Brunswick stew. Back home, we would have it every year. We'd get a big old cauldron, and we'd cook the big stew all day long, and it'd have squirrel meat and red beans and everything else in it. It was delicious. It's not worth your birthright. Not worth your inheritance. Not worth your tax return. <laughs> and he comes up, and, and the Hebrew here is, is frantic. It doesn't translate well to English. But when he says, let me eat some of that red stew, it repeats itself there. So this is the best way I could translate it to help get the flavor of what he's saying. The word, first of all, he says for eat is the word gobble or swallow gluttonously. So he says, let me gobble down some of that red stuff. That red stuff. It's in there twice. That red, it says. Hey, I, I'm, I'm starving. I need to swallow as much of that red stuff. Yeah, the red stuff, Jacob. Get it here. It's brash. It's bold. And so Jacob says, fine. Sell me your birthright. See what I mean? Quiet, but sneaky. 
which was an equally wicked thing to do, by the way. I read one commentator that tried to make it look like Jacob did the right thing here. Jacob recognized that Esau was not worthy to receive the birthright, and so he conceived a scheme to buy it from him. What? No. This was awful. They are buying and selling, haggling over the promise. The thing that drove Abraham out of the land of Ur and Haran, the thing that they suffered for and prayed for and waited for, they're debating and negotiating price over who gets to be the father of the Messiah. They are messing with holy things here. But Esau agreed to it. He says, I'm going to die anyway. Give me the stew. Now listen, he's not about to die. He's not about to drop dead. He's exhausted. Oh, I'm starving. You're not starving. You're hungry. I'm going to die. No, you're not. You're exhausted. And so Jacob says, swear to me. This isn't a handshake deal. They are making a formal oath. It is a formal, legal transfer of rights from the oldest son to the youngest son. Which is probably why it was remembered. You're the guy that sold your inheritance for a bowl of red stew? That's why they called him Big Red. That's why they called him Edom, and his descendants would be called the Edomites. For a pot of stew, Esau gave up the promise that Abraham had suffered so long for. He was exhausted, but he was not about to die. He was being flippant. When Abraham was 175 and died, Isaac would have been 75, and the twins would have been 15. They would have known Abraham. They would have heard the story. And here he comes in, trading it for lunch. He was being flippant. Now we're going to see later on, he had the birthright, which is the Hebrew word bekorah, but later on he's going to be trying to get the blessing, the baraka, from Isaac. And some have said that's maybe why Esau was willing to give it away. Because he knew, yeah, you can have the legal right all you want, but if dad blesses me with it, like he puts me in the will, it really doesn't matter what happened when we were born. But it's still an astonishing thing. Esau, it says, despised his birthright. That word for despise is bazaar in Hebrew. And it's got a couple different translations. To hold in contempt. To make light of something. To neglect something. To trample something underfoot. To despise. He despised his birthright. He neglected his birthright. He made light of his birthright. He trampled his birthright underfoot. The promise that God had given to Adam and Eve when he was driving them out of the Garden of Eden, he traded that for a bowl of soup. Hebrews chapter 12 will give us a warning. Starting in verse 14, he says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. See that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Don't be like Esau, who traded the most valuable thing he owned for something so cheap. In a fit of fleshly passion. He was hungry. He was not distraught. He was not at the point of death. But he was hungry. Yeah, sure, fine. He gave up what was most precious and lost it forever. And the book of Hebrews warns us not to be like that. 
Because as a Christian, you also have a remarkable birthright. Did you know that? Not from your physical birth. You might have an inheritance coming someday. You might have been born into a birthright. But when you were born again, you absolutely were given a birthright. You have a whole new heritage and inheritance in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. You, if you are a Christian, are an heir of God and an heir with Christ. Whatever Christ inherits, you shall inherit because you are in Christ Jesus. This was the goal of Jesus coming to earth in the first place. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, emptied himself and became a man. He lived and died and rose again for redemption. And then he ascended to heaven. 100% God and 100% man is seated at the right hand of the Father right now. He intercedes on your behalf. He stands there to bring you and be your ticket into heaven. He's there for you. And he sent his Holy Spirit to fill you and testify to you of the truth of all these things and make it real and experiential in your life and to shape you into the kind of person that is ready to receive these things. That is your inheritance. That is your birthright. Few of these things that come along with that. You have forgiveness for sins. You have forgiveness. All the wrong things you've done have been forgiven. All the things that you lie awake at night and they cause you to have a cold sweat even now when you remember what you did all those years ago. That's been forgiven. And you have grace to keep trying. And even when you mess up, you can get right back up and know that if Jesus is still there, then I haven't moved and I'm going to keep going. You have the power of the Spirit for life and ministry. You have the power to say no to sin. You have the power to minister to somebody the same way Jesus did, with the same power. You have spiritual gifts that God has given to you. Supernatural power. You have emotional blessings, joy, and peace. You have the knowledge that somebody loves you no matter what. You have the knowledge of God. There are people that climb mountains on their knees in the freezing cold with no clothes on in order to catch a glimpse of God. And you have been invited to come and know God. You have the hope of heaven. When you die, you're just getting started. You have the hope that Christ is going to return with you. And Revelation says not just to be with him, but to rule and reign with him. You will be seated on a throne in the coming kingdom. You've not just been adopted and brought out of the fire. You have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's a glorious inheritance. But we have the same temptation that comes our way that Esau did. When we are exhausted, or when we are bored, or when our flesh is inflamed, we are tempted to trade that blessing for a cup of stew. Trifling temptations are what bring us down. Haven't you noticed that? Most of us don't get defeated by profound things. Drama and movies and books, they, they portray the struggle between good and evil as some mighty thing. 
Frodo's got to go destroy the ring, climb the mountain and throw it into the volcano. Real battles between good and evil aren't like that. It's between you and your flesh. It's you deciding, am I going to be a glutton and continue to eat even though I know that I shouldn't and I'm harming my body? Am I going to look again and lust this time? Or am I going to keep my eyes where they need to be? Am I going to tell the truth and incur the consequences? Or am I going to lie and further ensnare myself in a lie? Trading it for stew. The temptation to be lazy. What do you gain when you're lazy? Have you ever been lazy and neglected work and then thought, wow, I'm so glad I did that. I'm so glad I put that thing off. I'm so glad I waited until April 14th to try to file my taxes. Have you ever been glad that you lied? Wow, lies have really done great things for me, haven't they? I told her a lie, and, I, and she believed it, and you know what? We've just been great ever since. To cheat, or to lust, or to boast. Do you ever brag and then feel good about bragging? Usually you're like, why did I say that? Now they're going to expect me to do that. The boss says, do you know how this program works? Oh, yeah, I've done it all the time. Okay, good, then I'm going to need this by Friday. Now you're stuck. Most of us are not defeated by profound things. We're defeated by cups of stew. Little things that take the experience of the blessing and the abundant life of God in Christ Jesus, and we give that away for one moment of pleasure. And it comes when we're bored or tired or hungry. And don't say to yourself, well, what difference does it make? Once saved, always saved, right? I can sin all I want. I'll tell you why. Because the Bible warns you against that. Did you know that? Hebrews chapter 2, verses 2 through 4 says, The message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. He's saying, under the old covenant, God punished them when they messed up. So how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? You think you can just throw your inheritance in God's face with impunity? Trample it underfoot and expect there will be no consequences? If God judged Israel, will he not do the same to you? Paul tells us in Romans, he says, listen, you've got a better blessing than Israel, but don't you dare get uppity with yourself and think you're better than them. If you persist in this attitude, this flippant, the things of God don't matter, holiness doesn't matter, I'm going to do what I want to do, what I want to do is what I'm going to do. If you persist in that, you will find yourself unable to experience the fullness of your birthright. Later on, we're going to see that when Esau comes to his father, ready to receive his blessing, his father has no blessing to give him because he had given it away long ago. And in some cases, we can even be found outside of the blessing of God. The Bible talks about people whose hearts are choked out by the thorns of this world and they don't bear any fruit and they fall away. Or those who have shallow roots and the hard times of life scorch them because they never took the time to dive down deep. So look to yourself, Christian. Have you counted your salvation a common thing? It's just part of life. You know, I'm an Alabama fan. I'm a Christian. I'm an American. And I like McDonald's more than Burger King. It's all the same. A common thing. It's just one more badge, one more thing you've selected on your Facebook page. That's treating your salvation like a common thing. Have you trampled on it? Have you treated it flippantly? 
Maybe not outwardly where everybody can see you, but when you're by yourself, what difference does it make? No one's watching. You're trampling on your salvation. You're trampling on your birthright. And then you, what do you do? We come to church and we blame God for our lack of inheritance and blessing. God, you said I could be full of joy. Where's all the joy in my life? God says, don't come to me with that. You are holding bitterness and unforgiveness against your father. I told you that you needed to get rid of that. Well, Lord, it doesn't make a big deal. He goes, this is a big deal. This is everything. You think you can continuously walk in lust and expect to feel secure with me? You think you can lie and you can cheat and you can deceive all the time and expect to have the joy, 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 joy down in your heart? I'm so dry, God. My spirit is crying out for you and we use the scriptures and God says, I'll tell you why. Because you've got a rock that has fallen forward, damning up everything that I want to give you. But God, you said, and God's like, yeah, I did say, but you traded it for a bowl of soup. You ever be doing really well with the Lord and you're having such a wonderful day and you're walking in righteousness and you're singing praise and then something happens and you blow up in somebody's face and you curse them out and then you walk away and you're like, oh, let's try to get that feeling back. You can't. You traded it in that moment for a bowl of soup. You traded it away. An athlete who gets a full-ride scholarship and then spends all his time partying and doing drugs and going out on the town and not showing up to practice and then loses that scholarship, he's no victim. No one feels bad for that guy. We say, you had every opportunity and you threw it away. When the rich heiress is disinherited and then she wants to go on TV and cry about it. It's like, I don't feel bad for you. You had every chance to lose all of that. You must have done something really crazy. Or the prince who squanders his nation's treasures. Consider the prodigal son. He squandered his inheritance, didn't he? He shows up to his dad and says, all right, dad, I'm not waiting around for you to die. Give me my inheritance now. I want it now. And he gives it to him, and off he goes. And he wastes it. He takes half of everything his father owned, and he wastes it. We don't know what he did exactly, but his brother would mention in that parable that he at least spent a lot of it on whores and prostitutes. Until eventually, he had nothing left. And he didn't come to himself until he was sitting in a pigsty eating the same food the pig was. That's where sin will lead you. You are a son or daughter of the king and you're eaten with the pigs. You can't blame your father for that. You're the one that took that inheritance and threw it away so that you could spend it on your pleasures. That's why your prayers aren't answered. James says, you come to God and you ask and you don't receive because you want to spend it on your passions. That's what we do. And I hope someday that you find yourself among the pigs. You look up and you go, what happened? Because God loves you too much to let you go. And the Bible tells you that he will allow his children to run to the end of their leash until he could draw them back. But here's where the story gets good. When you find yourself in that place, maybe you find yourself there right now. Maybe the words that I've said have snapped you out of it and you looked around and you realized, I'm in a pigsty of my own filth. Well, you gotta do what the prodigal son did. Luke 15, 20 through 24. He arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Here's the good news. Your father is waiting for you. He is waiting for you to restore the fullness of your inheritance to you. He's not going to condemn you to go live in the pigs. Esau had no opportunity to repent. He gave it away. Later on, Jacob is going to deceive him and he's going to lose it a second time. But guess what? You do. You have the opportunity to repent. And if you've traded the splendor of salvation for moments of pleasure, you must repent. Not one big thing, but 10,000 tiny things stacked on one another that amount to a big mess. Esau was stuck in his mess. You are not. You have a holy God who sent his son to die for you just for moments like this. And that's the call that I'm going to leave you with today. What have you traded your abundant life for? See, I'm willing to have less of an experience of God and less of an abundant life so that I can talk the way I like to talk. I'm going to trade these things away so that I can do whatever I want sexually or so that I can live with my money the way I want to live with my money. I can, the list goes on. Out loud and on paper, it sounds crazy. Who would trade their inheritance for a bowl of soup? But we're just like Esau. But God has chosen you. You're his child. He wants to restore you. He wants to lift you up out of the pigsty and say, this is my son. Look at my grace. Because what did we read earlier? It's not about what you've done. It's God's sovereign choice. And if he's chosen you, then you need to get back. Because the Lord is waiting to put the ring on your finger and the robe on you and put a crown on your head. You've got to lose everything. To follow Jesus. Get rid of all of it. Because all the little stuff you've accumulated, it's not helping you. You're like a hoarder. Your house is full of stuff, but none of it's worth anything. Because it's all this little, tiny, rink-eating stuff that you've traded your abundant life for. Jesus says, let me burn the house down and build you a new one. No, Lord, you can't. I'll lose everything. Yes, and it will be painful and it will hurt. A lot of times the thing that keeps us from repenting is that if we know if we repent, we'll have to make a change. And if we make that change, we'll be exposed and everything's going to collapse. But that collapse is what needs to happen, Christian. That's what we're looking for. Because as the psalmist wrote in Psalm 16, 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places and I have a beautiful inheritance. Your inheritance is greater than 10,000 bowls of stew. You know what Jesus said your inheritance was in John 16, 15? All that the Father has. The Holy Spirit's job is to take everything that God has and give it to you. So don't despise your birthright. Honor it. Treasure it. And give up everything to attain it. And then you get to live it. And that's the fun part. We've got to get past this foolish barrier and break it down through repentance because the Lord's got a whole life for you to live on the other side of that wall. We used to call it the deeper life. The term's not used much anymore. But it's still true. The Lord has more for you. He wants to get you out of the wilderness and into that promised land if you're ready.